Hello, everyone. Good to be um, chatting again with you guys this morning, in particular. Um, welcome to add from me to Emma's this morning, particularly if you're here, you're here for the first time. Um, if you're joining us this morning, uh, we're in a little series at the moment, a teaching series, where we're exploring this simple phrase, a community on mission. And the reason we're exploring this is because we've seen that in the simplest terms, that's who we are here at Herald. We're a community on mission, and we're a group of people who've taken up the Bible's invitation to us to be a community on mission, and we're seeking to live that out uh, in the 21st century here in Liverpool. That's what we're doing. In January, we spent several weeks exploring the invitation into community specifically in the Bible, and along the way, we saw that the hope of the world and the hope for our city really does rest in us living out that kind of community in the here and now. And last week, we kind of picked the series back up again, and this time we began to focus on the second half of the phrase, what it means for us to be a people on mission. Now, before we go any further this morning, um, I think there's a few challenges that we need to kind of step over a little bit if we're going to think through this question of mission, and I want to just get them out in the open before we get any further. I don't know about you, but when you hear this idea of mission, all kinds of images might come into your head. Um, things that you associate that word with. For me, the word mission will forever be associated uh, with my mother picking up on our teenage slang 10 years too late and then going around telling everyone she met that everything was a mission, whether it was a DIY job or a journey in the car, and then looking at me really proudly being like, down with the lingo, 10 years too late, mum, thanks. I'll never get over the embarrassment of that. I always think of that when I think of the word mission. But for many of us, the first image that might come into our heads when we think about mission is of missionaries. Uh, people working in other countries, often in the developing world, caring for the poor and giving out Bibles. And um, it's worth us just noticing that association at the outset, if for no other reason than to realize that's not quite what we're talking about here. The modern missionary movement, as we've come to know it, can be traced back a couple of hundred years, end of the 18th century. Some phenomenal things have come about because of the modern missionary movement. Also some tricky issues as well as we've had to start grappling with things like colonialism a bit more deeply. But one of the biggest issues with it, I think, for us is that we've often, as a result, come to equate the Bible's invitation to us to be a people on mission, almost entirely with what we think of when we think of the modern missionary movement. And the result of this is that we can tend to think about mission as something that happens over here, particularly for a particular kind of person. And before we know it, we can start thinking that what it means for us to be a people on mission is we need to start exploring moving overseas and adopting some questionable fashion decisions and whatever else it is. And the, the problem with this, of course, is just me. I don't know. That's just what I associate with it, but that's probably unfair. The problem, of course, with that is that we can miss the invitation in the Bible, the sense in which the whole of the local church, every single one of us has been invited to become a missionary people. Not over there somewhere, but right here in this city in the midst of our regular lives. And as a result, it's likely to look probably very different to the kind of images of it that we have in our heads. Now, the other challenge when it comes to thinking about mission is that we often think of it in a very different way to how we think about any other area of the Christian life. So when it comes to things like worship or prayer, or life in community, we tend to get instinctively that these relate to this kind of beautiful journey we're on as we start to get to know God more and more for who he is, start to get to know the world more and more as it is, and start to step into becoming the people we're made to be. But then for some reason when we think about mission, it's almost like we go into another mode in our head and now suddenly we think we're dealing with a completely different kind of thing, like this is somehow about our obligations and our duties as a Christians, the things that we're supposed to give 
back and almost as if that's sort of intention or a trade-off with the good bits of the Christian life. And, um, you know, if you can relate to that kind of experience at all, I would wager something further has already happened to you by now. Either you spent your life striving to do things for God, only to find that you've ended up anxious and exhausted along the way. Or you've sort of felt the heavy weight of those obligations and they've quickly left you feeling uncomfortable or unqualified and ultimately guilty that you're not doing more than you are. So if you're in either of those camps this morning, just want to say there's good news for you today. Anxiousness and guilt are not the only options. Uh, Anxiety and guilt aren't God's heart for our lives always. We know that. And what we saw last week, actually, as we started to think about mission is that just with every other area of the Christian life, so too mission isn't really an obligation that's supposed to weigh heavy around our necks. Instead, it's an invitation to us to see God more for who he is, to see the world as it really is, to step into being the people we're made to be. In the Bible, when Jesus told stories to describe to people what God was really like, again and again, what he described was the image of someone who was on a mission himself. At one point, we looked at this last week, he told three stories to describe what God was like. First, of a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. Then, of a poor woman looking for lost money. And thirdly, of a father seeing his strange son in the distance and running out to embrace him. And what Jesus wanted to show us was that things are not business as usual for the creator of the universe. He's a missional God. He's not up there in the sky polishing his halo and watching daytime TV. He's down here in the dirt. Never sleeping, the Bible tells us, tirelessly pursuing our world until that which got lost in the beginning is finally restored and renewed. In fact, when we see Jesus born into poverty in first century Palestine, we realize we're looking at none other than the face of God himself, who'd left everything to come after us for the sake of mission. And you know, this is all great news for us because it starts to free us from these traps of anxiety and guilt. Mission doesn't need to make us anxious because it's happening with or without us. It doesn't rest on our shoulders. In other words, it's not something we initiate, it's something that we just align ourselves to. The theologian Leslie Newbegin, we said last week, put it like this, he said, the question is not, does God's church have a mission? The question is, does God's mission have a church? In other words, if we want to be a people on mission, the question we need to be asking ourselves isn't, what do I need to do? Instead, we've got a far better question to start asking ourselves, which is, how do I get to join in? If God is our mission to recreate the world, then this incredible news gives us cause to hope for our communities and to hope for our city. And becoming a people on mission simply means to start asking this question, how can we join in? It's a question we can ask completely free from anxiety and filled instead with joy and excitement that we get to participate in this bigger story of hope. So that's a bit of a framework for you. I really struggle with turning the page on a Sunday. That went badly. I I, I told myself last week, practice your technique of turning the page. The lick of the finger. We'll move on. I wanted to get all that out the open, just to, for, for those of you who missed last week, just to set the framework, because it's where we're starting from today. It's, I think, essential that we build from these healthy foundations as we start to think about mission. Otherwise, we just start going down the wrong track from the beginning. So that's kind of the question that I want to spend time unpacking this morning, this question of what does it look like for us to join in with the mission of God? If that's the question, what's the answer? So the first thing that we need to do 
if we want to know how do we get to join in the mission of God is that we need to know the story that we're joining. It's the first thing we need to do. We need to know the story we're joining. And um, this kind of presents us with our first challenge because um, often we think we know the story of God. We think we know the story of the Bible inside out. And the problem comes because really we don't. Um, often we kind of think the story goes a little bit like this. You might find this familiar. Sin is a problem. Uh, Jesus came to die for our sins. And each of us therefore needs to accept Jesus now and be made right with him to fix the issue. And what's the problem with the story? Well, the, the problem isn't exactly that it's not true. Uh, the problem is rather that it's a massively truncated version of the story. It misses the beginning of the story, and it misses the end of the story, and in so doing, it misses the point altogether. Chris Wright is this brilliant Bible scholar. Um, he wrote a book called um, The Mission of God, and it's, it's, a, it's a big, huge kind of book. I wouldn't recommend reading it to you. Helpfully, he's distilled it into a much simpler, more accessible book called The Mission of God's People. If you can get your hands on it, it's really worth a read. And in it, he talks about the four parts of the story of God. Firstly, creation. Secondly, the fall. Thirdly, redemption. And fourthly, renewal. Creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. And what you'll notice is that the, the version of the story that I've just recounted to you only really talks about the second and third parts of the story. But it says almost nothing about the first and the fourth parts. And because of this, that's why the story lacks much explanatory power that other compelling narratives tend to have on us. It's, um, it's been pointed out by kind of professional story, uh, story writers and storytelling experts, people like Babette Buster, who've got like the best names in history, but they wrote things like Toy Story and all that kind of stuff. They, they point out that all the most compelling narratives deal with questions of origin and questions of destiny. Questions of origin and questions of destiny. Questions of origin are questions like, why were we made? Where did we come from? And questions of destiny, what were we made for? Where are we going? And it's for this reason that Chris Wright argues that this kind of truncated version of the story that we're sometimes so familiar with and real off to ourselves is woefully insufficient. And he says this, he says, many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. How true is that? But when we start to get to know the full story of God, right from creation to renewal, we discover it's anything but trivial. Uh, we see that it's a story that gets right to the heart of the most painful aspects of our human experience, and it gives us cause to hope. It's a story, in other words, that has everything to say about origins and everything to say about destiny. I want to just show you quickly how significant it is that we take in the full sweep of the story of God, not just the middle two parts. Because the Bible actually begins by showing us how the experience of the world that we have now isn't a reflection of how the world was actually created to be. Instead, what we're given at the start of the Bible is a window back into a world of beauty and order, of peace and equality, where we were created, despite what it sometimes seems, not out of chaos and out of random chance, but out of love and purpose by a good creator, that he designed us to live in freedom and in fullness of life, in community with one another, in harmony with creation. And this same God who also endowed us, uh, he also endowed us with a unique and noble purpose in the world. He gave us the role of being his image, in other words, his representative, so that everywhere we stepped, 
we would become the means by which that same created world would exist and continue to stay in that state of peace and love and beauty. And all of this we're told in the story of God before even sin enters the equation. And it's because of this that we start to understand sin for what it actually is, this kind of baffling turn of humanity away from this noble vocation and towards a kind of self-centered life and all the kind of uh, devastating consequences that that then unleashed. And at the same time, the Bible tells us the end of the story. It shows us about our destiny. It shows us that God has come in Jesus ultimately for this purpose, to say no to the world that we've unleashed and to reinforce his yes over the original world that he intended. In other words, he's coming to lead us by the hand into the freedom and life and authority and purpose that he first designed us for in the beginning. And at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, we see how this ends. We're given this picture of heaven descending from earth and God then crying out over the earth, see, I'm making all things new. So it's a vision of restoration. It's a vision of the renewal of our human purpose. And it's a vision of the securing of our destiny. And you see how much more compelling that story is, how much more it actually touches us um, and explains the questions of our heart. I can remember um, when I became a Christian. I was 13 years old when I became a Christian. I walked into um, a church off the back of my sister inviting me. And as I began to hear this story bit by bit and piece it together, I remember how compelling it started to sound to me. And I remember reasoning to myself, even as a 13-year-old, this isn't the kind of story that you can just make up. People don't just make this stuff up. It's not like it's bigger than us. I realized it had the power to explain the life in front of me and the world I was trying to make sense of. It spoke to every hope and every fear that I was experiencing and that I saw going on around me. And I found it utterly convincing. And so if we want to join in the story, then we need to get to know the story that we're joining. And practically speaking, knowing of the story is one thing, but allowing it to sink down into our guts is a whole other thing. So I know of the story of God, but do I wake up every day in the morning and think, stretch and think, God is on a mission to recreate the world. I don't mean to alarm you, that is not the first thought that I have every day. Sorry to disappoint you. Most of the time I wake up every morning and my thoughts are a heck of a lot more prosaic than that. Normally I'm thinking, I'm annoyed with my neighbors because they kept me up last night. Or um, I'm absorbed in my to-do list for the day. Or I'm kind of playing around worries that have kind of crept in somehow in the night. And one way or another, my day usually starts with self-absorption. In other words, I don't wake up living in the story of God, I wake up very much living in the story of Jamie. And so the thing is that I need to find again and again the story of God every day. Somehow I need to allow myself to be reminded of it, to be reframed by it, recalibrated by it, reformed into the story of God. And that's the whole point of prayer, it's the whole point of worship, it's the whole point of opening the scriptures. They're given to us as gifts for that purpose. And the point of them, by the way, isn't to try and make God fit into our stories, for me to make God fit into the story of Jamie. I don't know about you, every time I've tried that, it doesn't end well at all. Um, really what I need is to allow my eyes to be gently lifted away from the story of Jamie and to begin to refine my place in the story of God. And the wonderful thing when that happens is that my anxieties slowly begin to quiet down. My frustrations begin to cease. Joy begins to rise up in me because I begin to tune back into this 
truth that the meaning of my life is actually found in a much bigger story of hope for the whole world. So let me ask you this at this point. Do you know the story of hope? Do you know the story of God in its full sweep? And more than that, have you let it sink down into your guts? Because it's got good news to speak to every single hope and fear that you're facing in your life. Or are you still trying to make God relevant to your story when really God's inviting you to become relevant to his? Casualty at the back of the room. Are you still trying to make God relevant to your story when really God's inviting you to be relevant to his? So what does it look like to join in with God's mission? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to know the story we're joining. We've seen that. We need to start to let it change how we view our lives. But the second thing we need to see is that we need to make ourselves available then to the story. We need to make ourselves available to the story. Now, that might sound like a simple enough thing. It's actually harder to do, I've discovered, than it sounds. The, the challenge for us comes because often we're either unwilling or we're unprepared to be interrupted. Uh, and this is relevant because when God invites us to partner with him to bring hope to some other person or some situation, it's pretty much guaranteed that we're doing something else at the time. Okay, So we're either at work or we're at home or we're with our friends. Or we're involved in doing something else in those moments, which means that if we want to be available to join God's story, then we need to get really, really good at being interrupted. It's unavoidable. When we read the gospel accounts at the start of the New Testament, one of the most striking characteristics we see about Jesus was how available he was to being interrupted at every moment. This is actually startling. The majority of the recorded episodes in Jesus' ministry weren't planned encounters. The majority of them were testimonies of what happened when Jesus became available and allowed himself to be interrupted by someone. In fact, it's true that Jesus' um, kind of mode of being, he was so interrupted so much of the time that his interruptions became interrupted. And often like the story plays out like that. So Mark 5, we get a story like this. We read of Jesus getting out of a boat with his disciples, only to find that a, a crowd is unexpectedly gathered on the shoreline waiting to hear Jesus teach. And presumably at this point, Jesus is sort of embracing the interruption and about to teach them when suddenly a guy at the back of the crowd called Jairus, this religious leader, pushes to the front of the crowd and then interrupts the crowd. And he says to Jesus, will you come with me? My daughter's dying. Would you come take a detour with me and come and heal her? And Jesus says yes and starts going with Jairus. And they start walking along and the crowd start following behind them. And then at the same time, as the crowd are pressing in around Jesus and following him and Jairus, someone reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak. And Jesus stops what he's doing and he stops Jairus and he turns around, he addresses the crowd and he says, who touched my cloak? And it turns out it's this woman, she's a hemophiliac, she's been bleeding for 12 years, so she's probably in her mid-twenties at this point. She's in a desperate situation and she's reached out to touch Jesus in the hope of being healed. She tells Jesus this, Jesus sees her, speaks life to her, deliverance from oppression, and he heals her then and there. And then he turns around back to Jairus and carries on this detour that he's going on to heal his dying daughter. You know, that's just one story, but this kind of thing happened to Jesus all the time. He made himself available again and again to interruptions. His assumption was that the Father is already at work all around me, and all his job was to do was to spot what the Father was doing and then to partner with him in it. 
So there's this famous bit in John 5 where Jesus kind of talks about this dynamic, his sort of operating principle like this. John 5, 17 to 20. He says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. I, my father's always working, so I'm always working. I'm always available. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He's talking about himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. But the father loves the son and so shows him all he does. You see that dynamic playing off there. He's not, he's not looking to reinvent the wheel. He's looking to spot what the father's doing and then go with it. So availability is his operating principle. If we want to begin to join God's story of hope, then we need to become ready to be available to be interrupted. So at any moment, whether you're at work or with your, you're with your friends or you're at home, it's a potential opportunity to join in God's story of writing hope over the city. Alan Scott, who leads uh, the Anaheim Vineyard in California, he's really big on this. He talks about this all the time. He describes what partnering with God in the city looks like. And uh, he, he kind of describes his vision of it like this. He says, everyone, every day, everywhere. Everyone, every day, everywhere. And his point is that the people God uses to partner uh, with him are always ordinary people like you and me. And the moments he uses are always everyday moments, everywhere we go, usually when we're busy doing something else at the time. And all we need to do is make ourselves available. I've been, um, I've been trying to put this into practice in my own life. I'm starting from quite a low base, it must be said. I don't like being interrupted, quite goal-driven person. Um, and so it's been cats laughing, because it's all true. Um, what I've started to do is I've, I've started to kind of um, start from this basic assumption that if I find myself in the day talking to someone in conversation that I haven't met before, maybe I've, I've sat next to them on a train or I've bumped into them out and about or someone's introduced me to them like mutual friends or something, I've started to um, assume this sort of basic starting place that God is already busy at work in this person's life and then there's probably a reason that I'm having a conversation with them now. He wants to do something in them, either in that conversation or in a new friendship with them. Now, I just want to be clear, this isn't like an egotistical thing. I'm not like, how lucky they are to meet someone like me. Whew, they don't know yet, but they will. Um, you know, that's not where this is coming from. It, it, it flows out of living in this bigger story of God. I've come to see that my day-to-day -day interactions are a small part of a much bigger story of hope that God's working all over the place. And generally what I figure as well, just logically, is that a lot of people I'll speak to in this situation, a lot of them haven't met like a living, breathing Christian before, let alone a church planter, whatever that is. And so I kind of figure that of all the people they could be chatting to today, there's probably something that God wants to do in that conversation there and then. So last year when we started uh, the community litterpics up in the summer last year, I noticed this dynamic as we went around this neighborhood around here, people would start to come up and want to chat and find out what we were doing and why we were doing it, even as we were busy collecting litter in our high-vis vests and our litter picks. And, um, and Kath will probably tell you that it's because I secretly enjoyed the relief from picking up litter. But I sort of decided to consciously embrace these interruptions and go with them. And a couple of weeks in, a guy came up to me and he just started chatting. And um, we just had small talk, really. He told me little things about himself. Like he was originally, you know, he's, he's from Greece originally. He lived in London. He was just up. He was a carpenter doing a job in Liverpool for a couple of weeks. 
um, and that's why he was here. And I just started saying, yeah, we're out here because we're a, a local church. We're a new church here. We wanted to find practical ways to love and bless the neighborhood here. And that was that. And I, I kind of went away from it thinking, ah, oh, that was nice. Uh, you know, m- maybe God's going to do something in that situation. But my responsibility is just to be available. So I didn't think anything of it. And um, I didn't see him around the neighborhood for the next couple of weeks. We lived there and um, yeah, I didn't spot him. So I assumed that his job had ended and then he'd gone home after that. And then two more weeks passed, and we went out on our next litter pick. I'm there with my high-vis vest on again and my litter picker. And who do I see, lo and behold, coming down the street at me? It's the same guy. And at this point, I'm sure he's thinking, does this guy do anything else but pick up litter? He's just, he's just on it. Um, I, didn't, I didn't set him straight about that. Um, and uh, he came up to me, and he was like, ah, the vicar, which, again, I really enjoyed. Um, and um, uh, I was thinking at the same time, what are the odds that I'm running into the same person two times in a row. I haven't seen them in a month, but the next time I'm out doing this stuff, I'm seeing them again. I'm convinced there's something God wants to do in this person today. And I had no idea what it was. We just had this small talk. So I just, you know, we, we struck up conversation again. I just started asking him kind of polite questions, and he seemed happy enough to answer them and keep talking. And the longer we were talking, the more I was like, it's kind of weird that you've not left yet. There's something here. And I, so I just, I just asked questions and uh, I think at some point I asked him about his faith background and he started telling me he was from a Greek Orthodox background, which kind of made sense and, um, that he, uh, he had kind of complicated issues with his family. And then somewhere out of the blue, he said, oh yeah, and I, um, yeah, I did an Alpha course in London once. And at that point I was like, what? Um, but then I also thought to myself, of course, like, of course you have. Here it is. I knew there was a reason I'm having this conversation. Of course, God's up to something here. I just need to lean in and find out what it is. And um, as I just kept probing, kept asking questions, really with no strategy whatsoever, he just kept opening up and he started telling me about his love life and his career until finally we got to the most significant moment in his life. He told me of this incident where his partner who'd been drinking fell off a balcony and died and had fallen apart at that point. And so by now we were in a conversation suddenly where he's telling me that he believes in God in theory, but because of those uh, moments in his life, he doesn't have any hope now. He didn't have any ability to feel hope in his heart. And so again, I wasn't sure what to do, but I just said, look, I, I, don't, think it's a com- uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're having this conversation today. Uh, I, I think that Jesus has come in order to bring us hope, and I think he probably wants to bring hope now. Would you mind if I prayed for you? And he was getting emotional at this point, and he just sort of nodded. And so we, we, we prayed together there and then, and I just kept my eyes open and smiled at him and prayed simple prayers. I'm there with my high vis on still, my litter pick in my right hand. And, um, and I just I prayed that God would come and show him his love and encourage him and draw alongside him. And it was this beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I haven't seen him since around. I think his job definitely will have finished after that. So I don't think I'm going to get to see the next part of his story. But for half an hour... I got to be part of this bigger story of hope that God was wanting to write over his life. I guarantee he's not going to forget that moment. It's a total privilege when we make ourselves available and partner with him. God's wanting to use your everyday life, everywhere you go, to partner with him in writing his story of hope across the city. And all we need to do is be available to be interrupted and sometimes just to ask the right questions. So what does it look like to join God's mission? Well, we need to know the story we're joining, number one. And we need to make ourselves available to it, number two. And finally, as we close, we need to become expectant that God's going to move. 
Last year, a bunch of us from Herald, we gathered together one evening with this intention to practice growing in expectancy. And what we'd been doing, we'd been talking about wanting to be people who lived in the story of God. And because we knew how the story ended, we figured that we ought to begin to allow that future reality to start to reshape and recalibrate how we saw our everyday environments, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our sports clubs, our universities, friendship groups, family. And we'd seen how Jesus' announcement of the coming kingdom of God represented a promise of coming renewal to every sphere of human society, including all those spheres. And so that evening, we looked together at a list of the attributes of what this kingdom of God is going to look like in the Bible, littered throughout the Bible. What we found is that it's a pretty long list. Um, just some of the things in it I've got up on the screen behind me, things like people being at peace with themselves, people at peace with one another. The kingdom of God's going to look like people at peace with God, at peace with the rest of creation. God's presence dwelling there, sustained blessing, renewed strength, security, justice, freedom, deliverance from oppression, shared prosperity, comfort to those who mourn, healing and restoration, beauty, extravagant welcome, true worship, no pain, no fear, forgiveness, servant-heartedness, generosity, and a culture of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we kind of looked around this list, we realized this was pretty incredible that the story of God gave us hope that each of our everyday spheres that we were so invested in were ultimately going to experience that level of transformation. And then what we did next is that we spent time together in little groups, a few of us in a group, allowing the reality of this to begin to alter how we saw those environments now, those corners of the city that we were personally invested in and spent our lives in. And we began to kind of imagine what this would actually look like, how this would play out. People we knew becoming reconciled to one another or delivered from oppression. What our neighborhoods would look like when peace and security reigned and beauty shone, when communities experienced extravagant welcome and extravagant generosity. And once we'd done that, we went further still than that. We made space to allow the knowledge of how the story ends to begin to awaken dreams in us that we might be part of seeing the beginnings of this in the here and now. And it was such a powerful thing to do. It was such a powerful evening. I came away from it, and what I found is that it didn't just raise hope in me for the corners of the city that I spent my time, but it raised expectancy too. Because God doesn't just promise us that the story is going to end well. But right here and now, God is on mission to bring life to our city, and we're invited to partner with him in seeing it come about. So as we close, I want you to think about this a bit more deeply. We know how the story ends. Okay, We know the story of God. We know how it ends. We know that it, it's going to look like lives finding freedom and hope in Jesus, being set free from addictions, being released into people's gifts. We know that it looks like relationships restored, communities coming to life, cities being transformed. We know the end of the story. And I want to ask you, what are the dreams God's awakening in you at the moment that you would get to see some of this in our day. It might be a dream to see a particular person come to faith. Or it might be for you a dream that your street would be transformed into the kind of community where people share life together sacrificially. Or it might be a dream that a particular injustice that you see in the city would finally come to an end. 
or it might be a dream that your culture and your workplace would be shifted or that a social enterprise would be birthed in the city that would bring hope to Liverpool. Whatever it might be, God is wanting to capture your heart with this bigger story of hope and begin to draw you into the story yourself. And time and again, the way that he does this is he awakens dreams in us that we would see this future begin to start breaking in now. Those dreams that begin to bubble up in us, by the way, they're not just dreams. They're really invitations from the Spirit of God. They're invitations for you to step into the story he is already doing, writing across this city. You know, that's that's why we're here today. That's how Herald came to come about. God gave us a dream for this city, and we took it as an invitation to step out and partner with God as he writes a bigger story of hope over Liverpool. And so it's for that reason that I know that that's what God has for us as we move forward now, that he's wanting to turn the temperature up and awaken dreams right across this community in each one of us, that we take our gifts and we take our passions and we take our influence to follow those dreams down and to take up the invitation that he gives us to partner with him to bring life to the city.